HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, March 4th. This is the 55th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a true front-of-the-house man who is now an author, and I will introduce him in a moment. But first, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed-round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to share knowledge. As we go through life and gain experience, we should remember that others can learn from us. In PR, I think it's hard to teach media relations, as relationships are something that you build with time. But lessons can certainly be learned from experiences dealing with the media, such as what to do and what not to do to gain the best results. We can pass along what we've learned from our successes as well as our mistakes to help others prosper. So remember, getting older means getting wiser and sharing it. That's my tip today. Now I'm really excited to have my guest here who came in from Philly, which is super cool. It is Jeff Benjamin. He is the managing partner and chief operating officer of Philadelphia's acclaimed Vetri family of restaurants. Jeff is a two-time James Beard Award nominee, and he has a new book coming out called Front of the House, Restaurant Manners, Misbehaviors, and Secrets, where he gives a behind-the-scenes insider's look at running restaurants. So welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Yeah, well, this is our first time meeting, okay. so <laughs> I, I'm... I'm honored to meet you and have you on the show because I've always been 
a big fan of the Vetri family exactly. of restaurants. Mark did the show once before, I believe. He didn't do my show, no. but he probably he he might have done another heritage show. Yeah, I think so. He told me how to get here. <laughs> well, then he definitely did, and I've met him before. Mm-hmm. And I'll just start out with a, a solo dining experience I did years ago was at Vetri. Oh wow! And I look back when it was it was 2011. And um, I loved it. I talked about it on one of my sh- early on shows. Oh, so, um, well, better chance than not that I was probably there that night. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to get too into the solo yeah. dining thing, but I don't think, I don't know. Do you get a lot of solo diners? Because I felt, um, I felt that you didn't. <laughs> you know, it's it's. Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say the majority of the people come with somebody else, but. Right. Um, you know, we try our hardest to make sure that the solo diner gets treated to a great, great meal and a great time. Um, a lot of times, we take our cues from the diner themselves. You know, a lot, a lot of the solo diners, especially at Vetri, kind of keep themselves. They'll, uh, with the advent of the Kindle, they'll sit and read. Right. But uh, now everyone's taking pictures too. So mm-hmm. the solo diner is all of a sudden, hey, is that guy reviewing for somebody? <laughs> yeah. So you never know. You never know. Yeah, no, it's true. I was occupied with my phone. But I do remember when I was leaving, Adam Leonti popped out of the kitchen because he wanted to make sure I had a great experience. Oh, that's good. Which, uh, it blew my mind that he did that. And no, I was treated really well. Awesome. So let's get to how you got to Vetri. I mean, how did you first get into the hospitality industry? You know, my entree into the hospitality industry was probably not a whole lot different than most. Uh, You know, it was born out of necessity. Uh, I was a high school kid that needed to earn some money. Um, you know, restaurants are those places that hire high school kids. Also, we can work at night and weekends. Can't work during the day. Uh, so that just seemed to be what to do. Um, I worked a lot of weekends as a busboy. Uh, and I will say that I knew the very first time I worked at a double shift that that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And it was just my parents always said it was very bizarre. I came home from that night. I got to work at 9 in the morning, and I got home at 3 in the morning the following morning. And I said, oh, my God, I think I know what I'm going to do for a living. And they're like, why? I said, I just met some cool people. And every everyone who came in was brand new, and they were excited to be eating there. I'm like, okay. And, <laughs> you, know, and, you know, so what started off as just a need to make some money turned out to be, like, this epiphany. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> but, yeah, you, you, you just saw you had the passion, and you took it from there. And you grew up in New York? No, actually, I grew up in Iowa. Um, oh, okay. I moved. We, my family moved to New York when I was a junior in high school. Okay. Um, so that's when I, the, the epiphany happened in New York, not Got Iowa. It. But I, <laughs> I, I grew up in Davenport, Iowa. I don't know much about <laughs> the Iowa dining scene. You know, um, <laughs> b- believe it or not, there are some some great items, and, and actually, I, I know that right now there's somebody in Iowa listening to us because a friend of mine from Iowa called, and uh, I was talking to him, and I said, "Oh, I'm going on this radio show that's broadcast from Brooklyn." Heritage? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm going to listen. So oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Hi to Iowa. So hi, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So so you were, so I was looking at your bio, and I know you got your start, as you said, with restaurants in New York, mm-hmm. and you worked for some impressive restaurant well, groups here. Yeah, I worked for Restaurant Associates as my final stop. Uh, what a great organization. I mean, just, you know, it was a relatively small company compared to what it is now as part of the Compass Group, uh, and I got the opportunity to see a lot of different facets of the business because restaurant associates operated fine dining restaurants as well as venues and as well as corporate dining. So I got to see, you know, it was kind of the height of the investment banking 
thing going on, and so Wall Street was booming with all sorts of disposable income to spend on their dinners, so I got to do some really high-end things at an investment bank, but we also operated all the restaurants at what was the MetLife Center, Pan Am building at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, it, um, so I got introduced to quite a few people uh, in the business at that time. And then how did you meet Mark Vetri? Well, I, we started off just as uh, friends because I used to play golf with his brother, and uh, his brother and I were talking one day, and he said, you know, my brother's flying home from Italy. He's been living there for the past couple of years. Uh, he's a chef. You should meet him. I said, yeah, whatever. You know, I'll meet him. That'd be great, you know. Not holding out a lot of hope that we'll work together because we both have our different passions. But And we, we pretty immediately became friends. Um, and at one point had said to each other, if one of us ever does anything on our own, we'll call the other. Uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek or half-joking. And, and he did. He, he called me. He said, I'm, I'm moving to Philly. What do you want to do? I said, I'm, I'm on my way. <laughs> wow, was that easy. <laughs> yeah, well, it was easier for me, actually. If you read the foreword to my book, Mark will tell you I was his second choice. <laughs> oh, how funny. <laughs> but I, I think we've come to terms with the fact that it worked out. Well, certainly. So that that was, and you opened Vetri, I think, 1998? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, I mean, the ambiance, the whole thing is just it's 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 one of my favorite restaurants thank you um so how did so so how did you what was your role when you started and then how has it changed over the years because your your restaurant group has expanded beyond one yeah. i know mm-hmm. so i mean it was actually pretty simple back then you know uh, mark had two people in the kitchen with him and uh i was in the front of the house i was a server um we didn't need a manager there was only three of us on the floor um, and then as it got bigger and we needed to have a manager and then I needed to hire servers and we ended up with, you know, the grand sum in total of nine people by the end of the first year. And, um, you know, it well, didn't take off. It was a slow rise. Um, you know, we were not full at all during the week and we filled up on weekends. It was a small enough place that it would fill up, but it, as we got to get some more acclaim, it, it, it got to fill up. And then, um, the biggest kind of or at least the first transition was ninth year in, we opened a second restaurant, but that second restaurant was 135 seats compared to the 35 yeah. seats at Vetri. So at that point, I needed to completely remove myself from, from you know, actually being a server and, and, and maybe take some responsibility in life. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, by that time, Mark and I had become partners and um, and agreed that I would I would really take on a, like a managing director's role and we would hire GMs. And then... Uh, of course, now we're at uh, seven going on eight. The eighth restaurant will open at the end of May. Wow. And um, ninth and tenth will probably be before the end of the year as well. So at this point, it's uh, gone from the opening five or six to we have a, we'll have over 450 employees by the end of uh, May. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And I usually wait a bit to do my question from my guest from last week, but... It ties in. Okay. So let me ask it. So last week I had on Allie Rosen. Uh, she's the host and producer of Potluck Video. Mm-hmm. And her question was, when is the Vetri family of restaurants going to open in New York City? And I second that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I learned from a million different people, as have you, that you never say never. Um, it's much more of a possibility now than it ever was before. Uh, we did look at some spaces recently, but... Uh, there are two other cities right now that we're going to go to before we get to New York. Um, so we'll have to see. <laughs> and I'll have to wait to hear where they are. I get it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's cool, though, that you're expanding out of Philadelphia. We will. And I think, you know, I think it, it makes sense that we'll eventually get to New York. 
uh, one of the one of our mentors has advised us as to how the growth should happen geographically, and ultimately, it would be a very obvious skip over New York if we didn't do it. And uh, by that time, we'll be ready for it. Well, there's other Philadelphia restaurant tours like you know, Stephen Star and Jose, Jose Garces, and yeah, so they're making that jump. Yep, Let's let them do it first. Okay, <laughs> test the waters. <laughs> So, so let's get into this book that you've now written, mm-hmm. Front of the House. Like, why did you decide to write a book? You know, um, I, I enjoy writing for, for for me. I mean, I don't do it often, and I'm not like a. I'm definitely not a professional writer. But uh, a friend of ours uh, was producing cookbooks and was asking me about different restaurants he thought I would like to see books come from and and i said listen you know what's with all you people doing cookbooks i said you never talk to anybody from the front of the house you never ask you know what's happening on this side of the kitchen door and i think it's a pretty interesting i mean i've chosen it for my life's work so what do you think and i started talking to him and i was almost really just kidding him around and i never thought it'd be me i just <laughs> i said well, and so he called me he's like you know out of our conversation today, i was wondering would would you consider it i said I would love to take a stab at it, but with the caveat that I'm a restaurant guy, not an author. And uh, it was fun. I, I had a lot of fun. I didn't, try, you know, I think I was very careful not to try and reinvent the wheel or to, to write the end-all, be-all Bible of how to run a front of the house. Really just a, a glimpse into where I've been, uh, mistakes I've made. Uh, I think that there's probably applications for people not in the restaurant world who read the book and say, wow. It's simply a customer service lesson. Um, so I, I hope people enjoy it. There's some jokes in there. There's some funny stories. They're uh, somewhat self-deprecating. I, I, there's, a, there's a few major blunders I made with guests that I included in the book. So let you know that I have a sense of humor. Well, yeah, that I, I'm looking forward to reading it because uh, I, I know I'm it's, – it's a book for me because just looking at the chapters and, and just the title itself just makes me interested. Um, when you're writing it, I mean, how when did you, when did you start in the process and, and what was that like? Because writing's, writing's tough. It is, and <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to have people around who I could call and say, hey, I, I know you wrote a book or I know that you write for a living or what do you do when you sit down to write and absolutely nothing comes out of your fingertips? And um, so they gave me lots of cues. I started about a year ago, and um, you know, the first thing was to lay out the chapters. And, and with, I don't know the difference between writing nonfiction and fiction in terms of process, but at least with the nonfiction, there was a very defined set of things, and it did change a little. I had originally envisioned this book that took the took the process of making a reservation all the way through your meal to dessert. So I was going to have chapters of you know, making the reservation and entree, appetite. It, but, you know, that got a little cutesy, and it, it wasn't necessary. Um, but as I started to write, more chapters wrote themselves. Oh, i got to include this the next time, you know. So how do you make your reservation? Well, making reservations includes an app, a chapter about open table, and those of us who live through that transition from paper and pencil to open table. Uh, so I relate how I was probably the last one to the fold when it came to technology. Well, it's, yeah, that's it, that's a big change, you know, yeah. going from from pen and pencil and to, to to having it all online. Absolutely, and and you know, I think that the lesson there, if you're not in the restaurant business, is basically you know you get used to doing something a certain way, and it's really hard to change it. And uh, those of us who are in the business and that did go through that, you know, we see what the benefit of having an online platform to take our reservations, or at least even. We started off using it just as a CRM tool, you know, so I could put notes in about guests, and uh, we used to keep those notes on paper and pencil. 
and we kept lots of them. But you know, there was just stacks of notebooks in my office, and you know, having it kind of all there. But to those of us who didn't, you know, the internet was barely invented by that time, and we're we're being asked to entrust this whole thing to this new piece. Now it'd be crazy for you to think that you didn't have some sort of electronic device keeping track of your of your guest relationships. No, I, I get it, and it keeps changing. I mean, new apps and new technology, it's its constantly uh, growing now. So there's always this learning curve. I guess that keeps it exciting as well. It does, and uh, I, I like that there's always new stuff because I think it keeps the old guard on their toes. You know, if if the only platform to do CRM was Open Table, I think it'd be a, a different story. But there's other folks out there saying, hey, you know, I went through this in my restaurant, and I'd love to see. I mean, Open Table will react as well. They'll probably come up with version whatever 10.0, uh, and and has stuff on there that those of us in, in the field would say, "Hey, we we prefer you to do this for us." Right. Very good. We're going to take a little break here. Good. Come back. So this is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Yeah. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jeff Benjamin of the Vetri family. We're talking about his new book, Front of the House. I figured maybe we could talk, like, dive into these chapters a little bit. Maybe sure. you can tell us more more about what 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 uh, what's in them before we read them. Sure. So um, I don't know. From looking at the table of contents, I was just all the all the titles are very catchy. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, if you, you have specific ones you want to talk about, but I, I even the under chapter three at your service when you have we take the blame. The customers always right until they're wrong. Yep, and it's um, it seems like a pretty simple adage to live by, and it's one that had been taught to me by one of my early freshman year professors at Hotel Restaurant and Travel Administration School, and uh, you know it, because early on in this industry specifically in this industry, but maybe in, in any guest service industry, people always say the customer's always right. And and there's plenty of customers who believe that. And and that's fine. <laughs> because in their mind, or even in your mind, when you're having an argument with someone, you're clearly arguing because you believe you're right. But just remember who you are in relation to that guest. And, and they're still your guest. And if you had someone in your home and they didn't agree with what you did or how you did it, you would have a certain amount of diplomacy or decorum when addressing them. You may want to figure out a diplomatic way to let them know they're wrong, but don't just 
treat them like they're wrong, you know. And so it's a it's a pretty big thing for me that we don't get into it with a guest, and when we do, it's it it's a problem for me because at the end of the day, the guest with a comment or a complaint nine times out of ten is a very valid complaint or comment. And there are those times where it's just relatively unreasonable. But you can cut through the unreasonableness and come to a, a meeting of the minds and say, I fully understand what you're talking about. There is definitely a reason why we did things this way and it clearly wasn't to your liking and I apologize. My apology is because it wasn't to your liking, not because I think we did anything wrong or that I'm admitting that you're right, but just you're acknowledging the fact that this guy took the time to come into your restaurant and to be voluntarily pay you to do what it is you do for a living. And remember that that guy's probably going to come back. So if you've done everything correctly, you've now created a second timer and a third timer. But, you know, to get a guy in once and then to become argumentative with them, you're, you, can't, you can't survive. So, you know, look, keep in mind that this person has got a relationship that they initiated with you. They chose to come to see you. So already they've started off liking you. Something right, happened right. along the way to, to create a, a, an adversarial thing. And, you must have been a role player in that. Got it. Lots of lessons <laughs> I can tell in this book. <laughs> what about in, in, in your chapter four on the staff, when you talk about the tipping pool and mm-hmm. why the words, let me get your server, make you your skin crawl? Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> again, it was one of those things that happened to me uh, in college. And then I, I think it probably happened to me for, before, but I noticed it then. And then I started to notice it more frequently uh, that it really as a guest, it, it always bothered me whenever I would ask for something in a restaurant and be told, okay, sure, let me get your server. And they could say it with the most pleasant voice at all. It's not like they were being rude, but basically what they're saying is, I wasn't assigned to you. I can't help you out. And I think it's kind of like the human nature to want to help somebody. So I think you had to actively seek to not want to help me out just now. You know, human yeah. nature says you're walking down the street and someone drops something, you pick it up and give it to them. You don't say, well, I'm not a member of their family. Let someone else pick it up for them. So, you know, I kind of translate that into we, we're here to serve the guest. And, and it's for the greater good of literally everybody working at the restaurant, if, even if it's not your table, to help out that person. So, you know, I don't go too far into whether it should be a tip pool or a not tip pool. But what I do say is, and, and the Vetri family uses, uses a pool house, and you know, it's it's a pretty democratized one. It's you know, obviously the servers get the majority, and, and as they should, you know. But you know, there's never a time when it's okay in any of the veteran restaurants. And even if, and I I note in the book that you know, I feel like our staff is so great that regardless of how they split the tips, if they if they only got to keep their own, they would probably still help each other out because I think the atmosphere itself creates its, this teamwork. Like I'm waiting on table one right now. But that guy at table one, when he comes back again, he might have one of my colleagues as a server. He's got an expectation based on what he had when I was there. I'm very hopeful that all of the service staff is at the exact same level because they're going to come back because of the service I gave them, and they're going to get good service from you the second time. And All three of us will, will, will have had a relationship by the end of his third visit. So why would you ever want to not give good service regardless of where your station in the restaurant is? So I just think that that telltale sentence, let me get your server, mm-hmm. indicates to me you're not very important to me right now. Well, that's great because you're not going to be, I'm not going to be important to you the next time I go out to eat because I'm not coming back. And, and you know, I want to be important. I, you know, we have a, 
I think most of the people in the industry believe that if you have someone on the floor in, in the company's uniform, they should know most of the information that a guest is going to ask them. And of course, you're not going to necessarily expect a, a menu dissertation from someone who isn't a server. But for the most part, where's the bathroom? Can you pick this up? Where can I get a napkin? Where can, right. I, you know, where can I find a manager? You know, answer the question. So even if someone is on their training shifts, there are certain basic things they should know and be willing to help out that guest. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. I'm I'm flashing back to the days I used to wait tables because I did a long – it was when you were initially telling your story about how you got the bug. Like my mom constantly reminds me how when I was 16 and I took the car and I went and got a job at a restaurant as a hostess, like I had this desire to work and apparently in the restaurant industry um, and and it's it's just I I was driven to do that. And then I worked in restaurants, front of the house mostly up until – I moved to New York, so um, I'm, I'm, I recall these experiences, or even servers that maybe had that attitude that they didn't think it was um, their responsibility to help you out, but yeah. most, I don't know. Even the most selfish among us should want all the guests in the entire restaurant to be happy, because you never know when you're going to end up with that guest. And I don't, again, I don't believe that the Vetri family, or anyone kind of a, in, in our collegial circle, has service staff that behaves that way, but it exists. I mean, I've experienced it. I've been in right. restaurants and had people say to me, you know, you know, I got an empty glass of water for literally 10 minutes and all I want is a glass of water and you have to find the guy who's supposed to be giving it to me, which in and of itself is an issue. Why'd my server disappear for 10 minutes? But. Right. <laughs> well, another another one of these titles that, that cracked me up or <laughs> point out was uh, under the guests, uh, guests these days, ma'am, is that a wine glass in your handbag? Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I kind of, I remember these stories, too, of people taking maybe salt and pepper shakers, but a wine glass? <laughs> Crazy. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not divulging secrets because it's, it's written down in the book, but um, it always amazes me that, you know, there's this kind of thought that the restaurant has an endless supply of literally everything. And it's almost like in addition to the money tree we have out back, we also have a silverware tree and a glass tree, and, all. and yeah, you break something, you get, you know, and you know, we, we jokingly say if server broke something, it's going to come off the check or whatever, you know. But it's amazing to me the stuff that just disappears. So, you know, you can't really place blame, and there's a certain amount of our budgeting that indicates maybe a five percent or two percent or one percent breakage. But uh, my wife and I were talking one night, and she said, you know, the craziest thing happened today at dance, and my my, my daughter Allie's a dancer. And she said, you know, I was talking to one of the moms, and she didn't know that you owned Alaspina. So she was saying, I went to this new restaurant, Alaspina. It was great. We had my my family's big beer fans. We love beer, and uh, so um, it was a perfect place for us. We have seventy different beers there. And so he was excited, and she was like, "That's great. That's great." You know, my husband. Oh, we didn't know. That's great. Um, then I probably shouldn't tell you this. And so all of a sudden, my wife got this look of, "Oh my God, they had a bad experience," and she's about to tell me. She goes, <laughs> We love the glasses so much that my husband took two of them and stuck them in my handbag on the way out the door. And I, my she wife probably said, shouldn't have told you that. You just admitted that you stole from my husband's company. And granted, it's two glasses. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people are probably listening right now, like, well, what's he whining about two glasses? But literally, if everybody did that, I mean, where would we be? So I jokingly say in the book, don't even steal the sweet and look, because the reality is, it's not yours to take. You know, it's there as an amenity, but. The whole point of how we price out our dinner for you 
is based on the cost of our products. And if you've now doubled the cost of that product because you've taken half of it, then I need to raise my prices by just as much. Right. Do you notice different problems or different scenarios that happen uh, with the different restaurants considering you have fine dining down to more casual? Um, there are definitely differences because of the obvious. Um, the similarities are the ones that are probably more striking. You know, at the very basic level, we still provide a service. And our, our service has to be the best in that category. Um, so while I see differences in, in terms of how quickly people want to dine at each of our various restaurants and their demeanor in... You know, I always say there's this weird thing that happens when I go from a Mies, which is this bustling neighborhood trattoria, and I walk into a Vetri five minutes later, and, and it's like this calm has to come over you as you walk through the door. Otherwise, you're going to be too wound up to deal with the guests there. Um, but there is this basic level of expectation that you should have as both a guest and as a service member of our staff at any one of our restaurants. I, I do relate the story in the book that when opening the pizzeria, which is decidedly our most casual spot, we actually had a little debate internally about whether we should even hire servers. You know, we can, you can use an iPad. We talked about technology, right? You can mm-hmm. order, and the order will pop up in the kitchen. And, you know, one of the discussions around the table, and it was not a debate really because we all agreed, was that there's a level of expectation at the Vetri family restaurants, regardless of where you are, that you're going to have some sort of service, and that service is going to be at the highest level that that restaurant allows. So to not have a human interaction at all in the restaurant until you go to pay your check I found to be a real failing on our part. So uh, we pretty immediately tabled that discussion and went right to let's get some great servers and get them trained. As a matter of fact, right now we have servers who have been trained to wait tables at Pizzeria Vetri as well as Osteria. And they can they go back and forth? Yeah, not frequently, but at least they're trained. So if they have to cover shift or, or That's smart. You know, it makes sense. And it gives them a sense of what the rest of the family is about. You know, if you only work at the pizzeria, and you don't know what the other seven restaurants are doing, mm-hmm. well, how do you, I mean, it's like not knowing what your brother does for a living, right? Right. Well, that's very true. Very true. I'm so due back for a Philly trip. <laughs> Good all your Well, you're going to have to spend a week now. <laughs> I know, no. It's like serious, serious dining. <laughs> There's a great stuff happening, even outside our company. There's just such great vibe. The restaurant scene in Philly has always been pretty vibrant, and it's even more so now. There's lots yeah. of good young chefs coming up and little neighborhoods that didn't exist as, as dining destinations now exist and uh, we just opened a place at the Navy Yard which never had a restaurant before oh really yeah. I don't know Philly that well but it's, we'll take you around okay awesome we're going to take one more break here yeah. and come back we're going to do my speed round game talk some industry news it's all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network
We're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jeff Benjamin, and it is time for my speed round game. You ready? Nervous. No, no. Everyone, everyone gets nervous, but don't be. Right. Uh, I'm just going to name two things, and you pick your preference. Okay. So here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, or cocktail? Situational. <laughs> Fabulous. Tasting menu or a la carte? Mark's going to kill me, but it's uh, a la carte. <laughs> That's okay. It's your answers. Small plates or large plates? I'm going to have to go with small plates. Okay, very I, good. I tend to over-order, so ordering 10 things, knowing they're going to come in small plates would be better. <laughs> I like the logic. <laughs> How about uh, tipping or all-inclusive charge? Wow. Um, so he, he, here in March of 2015, I'd have to go with tipping, but I, I see that probably changing at some point. Yeah, it's, it's a hot topic. You know, and I think it's great. It's a good discussion. I think if the right people have the conversation, the right answer is going to come about. I think we're allowing others to have that conversation for us, and right. it makes it very uh, muddied water. That tree's tipping, right? It is. Okay, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do some more. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Working in fine dining or casual dining? Uh, I think simply working. (laughs) Okay, good answer. (laughs) Reservations or walk-ins? Reservations. Pat's or Gino's or Tony Luke's or another one I don't know of? Oh, my goodness. They're yeah, all, I had to They're ask. all customers of ours. I can't do that. <laughs> when I w- Pat's on Monday, Gino's on Tuesday, Tony Leakes on Wednesday, and our place is for the rest of the week. <laughs> Perfect. When when I was in Philly, I did the classic. Oh, yeah. Well, I, was, I was by myself, and I went to one and, and, and ordered it, went over, got the other one. I sat down, took pictures, um, had a few bites. Well, you that, know that what was we about do it. my uh, – so I think my assistant's listening right now, so – Every every year when she gets her annual review, I take her out for cheesesteaks, and we call it cheesesteaks and a raised day, and oh. we go to both Pat's and Gina's. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's convenient to go to both. Okay, two more. Mm-hmm. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate all the time. I just had one. <laughs> there we go. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Philadelphia? Ah, uh, Philly. Yeah. Here's to Philly. Okay, great. See? No need to be Not, nervous. Yeah, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so industry news this week. I thought this this article was interesting. It was on Grub Street. The No Reservations Generation Grows Up, How Bookings Came Back. And basically pointing out uh, some popular restaurants in New York City, like Pock Pock and Ivan Ramen, who are small venues who have not done traditionally taken reservations and that they're they're changing they're they're growing in size and they're also seeing the benefit of of having a reservation system so um what's your take on this you know and and as with much of what i wrote about the book um there's no one size fits all answer to anything so you know to say generically speaking the restaurant industry ought to do this which is why my comment about the tipping there's no generic answer uh, you know, reservations to me is the way to go. I think, um, I think when you take into account the service staff and and primarily the kitchen staff, for them to have no inkling of what's going to happen during the night, 
is a real difficult way to go into a night. You know, we already are going to get so many variables thrown at us throughout the night. People mm-hmm. are going to be late. People are going to cancel. You're going to have your no-show. You're going to have the guy who camps out at the table. There's all those things that are going to happen anyway. Why add to it the unknown quantity of, I have no idea how many people are going to walk through that door tonight. And that's just my personal preference. Again, the pizzeria was a tough one. We don't take reservations there, but I do have that no-wait app, which was my concession ah, right, there. Right. Which is a great app, by the way. And um, you can get yourself on the wait list, the quote-unquote wait list, but we did away with paper and pencil years ago, right? So this way you kind of have a quasi-reservation. You're on the list. We'll text you. You can be miles away. You can be in your house. You could be at a bar somewhere. And you'll get a text saying, do you want to come? But it's a two-way communication tool. You can respond to it. It's not like one of those buzzers you get in some of the chains mm-hmm. that just buzz on your on your hip and say your table's ready. You can actually respond. Okay, great. We're finishing up at the bar. We'll be there in 10 minutes. Or, hey, by the way, we got a seat somewhere else. We're sorry we're not coming. So there is a little bit of a planning uh, tool there. But, again, just like you said with Ivan and Pop Pop, you know, it's a 35-seat pizzeria. My, my guess is it'll probably fill up during the night. But... To think that you get much bigger than that and allow chance to take take effect, I think it. I think on some level, and I did read in the story about uh, Ivan saying he was he was getting tired of watching all the people waiting outside in the cold. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's a tough challenge for all of us, and uh, you know, I, I commend them for trying something new. But I I don't ever see myself not having some sort of hostess tool to to allow you to get seated in a timely fashion. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think. I think on the flip side, it's it's the no-shows of reservations that hurts restaurateurs a lot. And I don't understand why people do that, but apparently they do, that they no-show or they make more than one reservation. And That's the more galling thing, you know. Yeah. And the, the, the idea that you're going to go into the night with the knowledge that you're going to no-show somewhere or last-minute cancel. You know, hey, I have six reservations. Where do you guys want to eat tonight? I know. It's just... You just screwed five restaurants. The fact that people, <laughs> there are people out there that do that. It just and the annoys fact it's me. common knowledge. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I know. I feel like I'm on the outside of this one, but um, no. I think I think having a reservation system makes life easier. And as you said, uh, I think there. I don't know. I remember back in the day of working in restaurants. I thought it was a firefighter or something. Like you never knew where the problem was going to come. You knew there would be a problem, and you you should be calm and and you'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> but there's just it's challenge. It's a challenging industry to be a part of. Yeah, you never want to wish ill on anybody but you didn't want the reason for not showing to be simply because they were inconsiderate right (laughs) um so another article so the new york times they gave a second look today at tavern on the green Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a full review wells has already reviewed it uh but uh this was a re-review because jeremy tower is now has now taken over and it was better he said but he didn't it wasn't stellar um I don't know. I was I was wondering if you knew the 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 people that took over Tavern and Green yeah, are from Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, they have a a crepery on uh, Bainbridge called Beaumont, um, which you know I was a surprise. I don't know them at all, right. other than to know their place. So I was surprised at their choice to go to Tavern and Green, which is you know a massive leap forward in terms of size and scope of what they do for a living. Um, you know, full disclosure, I, I hadn't been to Tavern and Green since they've opened it, so I can't speak to to Pete Pete Wells' article. I mean clearly knows what he's talking about and clearly did some due diligence. You know, I told you earlier that, that I grew up in Iowa, you know, so Tavern on the Green, to, especially to people probably outside of New York, is this 
growing up was this place that you aspired to one day be. And as I entered into the workforce as a restaurateur, that was that place. And I really am holding out a ton of hope that that's where they get to again. It's from a location standpoint, you can't have a better place. And in the winter, when you go through there, and it's all lit up the park. I mean, uh, you know, I hope Jeremiah does a great job there. I've, uh, I, I'm, I know that it's possible. That the reality is, the place is massive. It's seven hundred seats. I mean, it, it, you almost kind of want to figure out a way to segment it so mm-hmm. you can turn it into four different restaurants, maybe, so that it operates differently in four different yeah. areas of a hundred seats each. I think that would. That could work. You know, I think it could. You could have a little uh, gastropub area, and you can have a fine dining area. Maybe, you know, who knows? I mean, there's a place in, in Rome that we go to called Gusto, and it takes up an entire block, but it's really four different restaurants. And, and you know, I, I think about that one, and it's certainly nowhere relationship-wise to, to Tavern on the Green, but if they, could con- if they could concept it into four different concepts, I think that they would hit it out of the park. But to do, you know, someone as iconic as Jeremiah, to mm-hmm. cook for 700 seats at a time, so what? probably 1,400 people a night. I, I just, I don't fathom it being uh, an easy task. Yeah, I agree. Well, if they're listening, you, this Philadelphia you just gave them some, something to think about. <laughs> okay, we're going to take one more break, come back, and we'll do my solo dining experience. It's all in the industry on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience of the week. Now, this week, I went to Samila. Here's the rundown. The location, 160 Havermeyer Street in South Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The concept, vegetable-forward dining. Samila is Spanish for seed. The chefs, Jose Ramirez and Ruiz, and pastry chef Pamela Young. Why did I go? Because I heard great things about this new restaurant, and it recently received two stars in the New York Times. My experience. I had a reservation for one on Saturday night at 6 o'clock. I was one of the first people to arrive. It was an intimate 18-seat restaurant with seating around this slim, horseshoe-shaped counter. And I was seated at the last seat right next to the open kitchen, which was literally next to the chef, so I could watch all the action. What did I get? It was a tasting menu of about eight courses. My take. Everything was really interesting and very delicious. Beautiful presentations and uses of vegetables. Highlights for me were the cabbage sandwich, beets with beef bone marrow, sunchoke chawan mushi, and their house-made hot sourdough bread. It was unbelievable, and I don't really like sourdough. (laughs) (laughs) Serious bread is going on there. Okay, the scene, mostly duos. Perfect for adventurous eaters and vegetable lovers. 
interesting tidbit. There's a unisex bathroom, and it has a one-way glass window looking into the kitchen. It freaked me out for a moment. Personal fun fact. I ran into fellow Heritage Radio host Jessie Kiefer of The Morning After, as she is now their head sommelier. The cost was $75, not including tax and tip. Would I go back? Yes, perhaps in a different season to try the new seasonal ingredients. Website is samilabk.com. So yes, they have a one-way, a one-way glass in the bathroom. <laughs> it's a it's a conversation piece, but I had no one to talk about it except here on the radio. So there you have it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So it's time for the final question. Um, next week, I'm having on Brett Friedman. He's of Agency Twenty One Consulting, which he does event management and corporate sponsorship. He's based in Miami. I don't know if you do you know anything. Do you know Brett? I, I've never met Brett. Well, well, even though you've never well, met Brett, you may meet him one day. And would, what would you like to him, ask him? Yeah. Well, you know, like my original thought was I was going to ask because we speak a lot about uh, what things I have changed over the years in terms of technology and what efficiencies I've put in place in order to make the guest experience better. So, I mean, his job is to consult those of us to, to do better and to, and to have guest experience. So. What one piece of tool, what, what one piece of or app has come out in the past decade that he would always tell his his consulting group? To, yeah. <laughs> is that, that what I want to say? His consoles to 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 uh, that they can't live without. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. There's apps. I think in the past year, it's like well, I, a handful. You know, it'd be nice if someone came out in his world and, and definitively said, "You can't live without X, Y, Z," because I. Almost every day someone tries to sell me their new app to do this to make my life easier. So it would be nice if someone avowed that. (laughs) Okay. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. This was fun. It was really nice to meet you. Good. Congratulations on the book. It's coming out this month, right? It's actually coming out next week. Okay. And how can one order it? Amazon.com. Amazon.com. Or come to the restaurant and eat, and we'll have it on the shelves for you. Even better. You got it. Okay, so I've been talking to Jeff Benjamin. He's the partner and chief operating officer of the Vetri Family Restaurants in Philadelphia. He's releasing his first book, Front of the House, which, as we said, is due out this month. Their website is vetrifamily.com. His Twitter is RKBenji. You can also follow Mark Ven- Vetri and Vetri Family. Or, well, Vetri Family, you'd have to use a hashtag. That's right. Which is what I will do. You got it. Okay, my social media is at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. As a reminder, all of our shows are archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and iTunes. Thanks to my engineer, Jack, and to Jeff and everyone out there listening. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 o'clock with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 